Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. We call the show Drilling Deep because we talk about oil and diesel, and you can't have oil unless you drill for it, and you can't have diesel unless you have oil. So that is why this show has that name. But it's also because we drill deep into an issue of the week. This week, our guest is Leila Palagashlivi. Uh, she commended me for being able to pronounce it right. Uh, so I hope I got a good that time, too. She's an economist with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And she's here to talk about the Department of Labor's proposed independent contractor rule. Let's just say that she isn't a big fan of it. Because of our tremendous F5 event in Chattanooga last week, I had to record my opening little monologue in advance. So I haven't been able to do a timely one on the diesel market in a couple of weeks, maybe more like three weeks. And guess what? I can report that prices actually are down from the last time that I did this, that I did more of a current riff on diesel prices. So let's talk about why. First of all, crude is down a few dollars per barrel in the last two weeks. While, as we've discussed, the price of diesel has been much stronger than the price of crude on a percentage basis, that doesn't mean it's so strong that it can't easily overcome the decline of a few dollars per barrel in crude prices. And that's what has happened. Second, while there has been plenty of general media focused on the level of inventories, they are not getting noticeably worse. There is that figure days cover. You get it by taking the inventory. You get it by taking the. You're getting by taking the inventory that the EIA has posted, uh, and then you divide that by average daily consumption, and the end result is days cover. It's how long inventories alone would cover consumption if all refineries shut down and all inventories, all imports ceased. But that isn't going to happen. So for all distillates, which are about 85 to 90 percent diesel, that number got down to less than 26 days. And there was a lot of hand-wringing that we were going to run out of diesel in 25 days. First of all, let's just say the norm over the last five years for this time of November has been about 31 to 32 days. So we're definitely lower, but we're not insanely lower. Also, obviously, all refineries are not going to shut down and all imports are not going to cease. The slightly good news is that the day's cover number in the most recent report ticked up about two-tenths of a point. That's good. Also, the price of natural gas is declining in the U.S., reducing the likelihood that there are natural gas applications that would switch over to diesel because of high nat gas prices. That's good, too. There was a report out of S&P Global Commodities Insights that inventories of distillate at the port of Fujairah in the Middle East are at the highest level they've been in two years. You may be wondering, who cares about something going on in the Middle East that far away? But that sort of thing really doesn't happen unless inventories are on the rise worldwide. It is hard to envision envision a scenario in which distillate inventories surge in Fujairah, but nowhere else. And then we have that 12-month spread. When markets are tight like they are now, the price of the first month ultra-low sulfur diesel market on the CME Commodity Exchange will be the highest price. The second month will be somewhat cheaper, the third month will be cheaper still, and so on and so on out the curve. That's because the front month barrel, that front month contract, reflects the the barrel that is most desirable in the market. Markets are tight. We need that barrel right now. A month ago, that spread was a dollar. Now it's about 80 cents. That is certainly suggesting an easing, at least a slight easing, in the inventory situation. And why wouldn't inventories be easing? Demand looks to be a little lower in the U.S. than the five-year average for this time of year. Refineries are coming off maintenance season, and they are going to want to run at big levels. 
given how much money they can make producing diesel, that's good too. In the latest weekly report, it showed refinery utilization in the U.S. going up 1.5 percentage points. That's a pretty good move for one week. Refiners want to give you lots of diesel because right now they can make a lot of money selling it. It is sort of crazy to make predictions about diesel prices given that winter hasn't even started. Heating oil is a distillate like diesel, and a cold winter is always challenging for diesel markets. But for now, we'll take the few things that are suggesting that inventories may have gotten to their low point and could be filling up. It's not always gloom and doom. We're going to move on here now on Drilling Deep. I've been covering the issue of gig workers, independent contractors, really for several years now. I've been writing about AB5 in California. And when I first started to do it, I figured, well, eventually I'd come across the ultimate law, the ultimate definition of what constitutes an independent contractor. And then after I realized after a while that that was completely pointless, that that was never going to happen, that there's a massive amount of laws and regulations defining independent contractors. They are not all in sync with each other. There are federal rules. There are state rules. You see that with AB5. So when the Department of Labor recently came out with its latest proposal for an independent contractor rule promulgated by the Biden administration to replace one from the Trump administration, uh, we've been covering it pretty extensively. So I was very happy to hear from a labor economist uh, at the Mercatus Center at George Mason, Leah Palagashvili, uh, who has been covering this issue fairly closely. So first of all, Leah, welcome to Drilling Deep. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. So first, let's talk about the Mercatus Center. I, I know how I have a general view of it as a kind of a free market think tank within George Mason University. I know the economics department at George Mason has always been a kind of a hotbed of free market thought and analysis. Uh, did I describe it right? Maybe you want to give it a shot. Yeah, so we're a nonprofit research center at George Mason University, and we do, uh, th- there's a lot of research on market-based ideas, but doesn't necessarily have to be only free market ideas. And within our own, uh, you know, halls, you have uh, people who disagree with each other and scholars who disagree with each other. Uh, so I would emphasize the part that it is um, mostly a research center where we do focus on uh, market on market ideas. So let's talk about the Department of Labor rule and where it fits in the sort of pantheon of regulations. Uh, It is to be used, I believe, by the wage and hour division uh, of the Department of Labor when it adjudicates cases. Uh, it It is not really a law. It would be guidance that would guide their decisions. Um, I will tell you that as I read it, I didn't think it was quite as starkly anti-independent contractor as some other people think, including, I believe, yourself. Um, but maybe I just wasn't reading it right. Your view is that it is a pretty big blow to independent contractor status. So why don't you talk about the basis for your reasons? Yeah, of course. So uh, just two quick Two quick things um, is that it does the this rule, and they say this directly, you know, within the rule that they do two things. First, they retract the Trump era rule, which was far more favorable to the independent contractor uh, status. So that was the January 2021 rule. Um, and that 2021 rule clarified and simplified um, the multi-factor test and stressed that two core factors, you know, a worker's control over um over their work and the opportunity for profit and loss uh, were the most important factors in making an independent contractor, you know, in making the independent contractor determination. So the first thing this new DOL rule is they retracted that completely. Now, the second thing that they did, which gets 
interesting is, um, you know, in addition to retracting that rule, they provide additional guidance um, that would that would actually make it more difficult for workers to be classified as independent contractors. And so I'll give you a couple examples. And it's and they're actually more strict than it was under the Obama rule. Um, so, for example, one of the factors in that rule, um, it's called the control factor. Uh, so the Department of Labor said that having flexible work arrangements uh, should not be considered so important to determine an independent contractor and independent contractor relationship. So when in reality, we know this is one of the key attributes of being an independent contractor. Um, you know, the duel is kind of went on to make this point that flexibility to turn down specific work requests is not indicative of um, an attribute of, an, of being an independent contractor. Um, again, also under the control factor, they said using GPS uh, technology acts like monitoring and supervising. So it looks like, you know, those workers should be employees if GPS technology is being used to, you know, monitor and supervise. Um, we know, by the way, that DoorDash and Uber, you know, they know where the car is and that's part of the business model and part of the deal because they need to be able to connect drivers uh, with riders. So I would, um, you know, I would say that it does. It, it goes above and beyond what the Obama rule was and that they added these additional guidelines um, that make it more restrictive to be classified as an independent contractor. Um, now, to the, now, whether the Department of Labor will apply this directly to the gay economy or to other industries, you know, that's, we don't know what will happen. <laughs> we don't know how they'll enforce it and how they'll apply it. So in that case, there, you know, there remains uncertainty about how much it will impact us, you know, independent contractors and the gig economy as a whole. But um, on a theoretical level about what the rule does, um, it does limit the circumstances under which a worker would be properly uh, classified as an independent contractor. And we, and what we'll likely see is probably legal challenges along the way, too. Right. You need a body of law to really know what's going on. In California, we've been covering AB5 as it relates to trucking. Of course, AB5 was kept out of trucking uh, by an injunction that lasted uh, two and a half years, I guess, and now that's gone. Uh, you, you almost, I guess on the one hand, the trucking industry doesn't want to see any of its members being, att not attacked, but being the subject of a legal action. On the other hand, if you're the subject of a legal action, it's going to create a body of law that gives you more specific guidance than just what is in the law. I guess that's similar to the case here. Yeah. And, and I just want to point out too, that I, um, after the GOL rule came out, there were all these media reports that were saying, oh, this is as bad as AB5, but it's not right. And I think John, this is where we would agree, um, is that it's, it's not as bad as AB5 was. It's not as restrictive as the AB, uh, as AB5 was in California. Um, but it is more restrictive than both the Trump rule, of course, and and more than and more restrictive than it was in, uh, during the Obama administration. Right now, all three of those rules re, re, uh, are based on what's known as the economic realities test. I mean, you you didn't use that term specifically, but that's what it's called. I'm not sure how many points are in total in the economic realities test. Uh, as I read the Department of Labor proposed rule, what they essentially were saying is that some of the some of the parts of the economic realities test we don't consider to be that important, but some of them we do, as you just laid out with the issue of control. Yeah, so it's a six-factor test. Uh, and so they kind of go through each of those six factors. And um, again, the one that is really important that they've made really restrictive is the um, con control factor, right? And that's where in the past, some of the gig economy companies and, and others uh, and other organizations who work with independent contractors have really um, 
shown that, you know, they use that factor to show why those workers are independent contractors, because again, it's, it's the key is flexibility, right? And so can the worker decide when to work, how to work and, and so forth? And that's been a, um, a foundational aspect of the gig economy, being able to like turn on and off the app. Uh, not working for months, kind of turning the app back on, right? So all of these various aspects are under the control factor uh, that the Department of Labor in this new rule is now saying, okay, let's take a look at this control factor and and basically say that these flexibility aspects of the control factor are not that important uh, and, and shouldn't be that indicative of an ind- independent contractor relationship. Um, now they, they kind of hammer down on other, fa- on other aspects of the, um, Sorry, they hammer down on other factors within the six-factor control test. Um, so, for example, the ability to um, the ability for the worker to make a profit. They they explicitly, by the way, say that uh, price setting, you know, is is uh, indi- might be indicative of an employment relationship. And as we know, Uber and DoorDash and all them, they use an algorithm because it's about supply and demand matching. And so, again, that's another one where they kind of. Twist it, twist the ass back to be a bit more restrictive on um, on the gig economy and independent contractors as well. And yeah, so- I, I, I just have my own experience with the Uber pricing and, and flexible uh-huh. pricing. I landed from Atlanta last week, and uh, I don't know. We, there had been bad weather earlier, and the, the, the gates were all screwed up. And we sat on the tarmac for an hour and a half, and I kept checking the Uber rates to to my home. And in the hour and a half that I was sitting there, they dropped twenty dollars. They they went from eighty something to sixty something, because I guess as, as you got away from rush hour, uh, the, the the pressure wasn't that bad. So in that sense, Uber had total control. There were no drivers who were doing it. And the the irony is that on the way to the airport, um, actually to a destination in Chattanooga where I was and where Freightways is based, it was a really high price. I think because of our event, uh, we had like eighteen hundred people in Chattanooga. And um, so the, the the price to go out to the shuttle service that takes you to Atlanta was like off the charts. I'd never seen it before. And the driver didn't even know that. I, I couldn't believe it. When I got in, I said, boy, you're making a lot of money on this short drive. And she said, really? She didn't know. So that's that's clearly control. But that had been okay, I guess you would say, under the Trump administration, but Trump administration rule, but not the Biden rule. Yeah. So this new Biden rule directly talks about this and says that um, if they don't have the ability to set price, that 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 um, makes it seem more like they might be employees. Right. <laughs> but again, and that throws the entire business model off in a way, because, you know, Uber is not just a taxi cab with an app, right? <laughs> it's not like I'm going to, you know, I, I used to live in New York City, right, for, for years, and I saw the transition with Uber and so forth. It's not just I'm going to pick up my phone and then like, you know, have a re- request a driver, a taxi driver to come to my, you know, to my hotel or whatever. Um, part of the business model, like a, a big part, I would say, of the business model is this flexible labor supply and dynamic pricing. Um, and dynamic pricing requires means that we, you know, I'm not going to sit there and negotiate on price with the <laughs> with the driver while I'm on, in the middle of the road under on a rainy street, right? Uh, and so that ability to basically have the algorithm um, uh, match the price is a supply and demand issue, but also just a transaction cost issue, right? We we reduce the uh, the time that I have to chat with the driver to negotiate with the price so that there's better ease and faster ease of me and the driver connecting. I, you know, I pick up my app, I click, and within two minutes the driver comes. We don't have to sit there and negotiate on price. Okay. Right. Now we know that Prop 22 in California was aimed at trying to uh, excuse the 
the Uber and Lyft drivers and DoorDash drivers from Prop 22. We know that AB5 was targeted at those drivers as well as truck drivers. It's all now kind of a mess. I mean, it was a mess with trucking for a while. Now it's a little clearer. But Prop 22 has kept the Uber and Lyft drivers away from that until that case is resolved in court too. That's that's in, in, court, in court as well. We won't talk about that now because that could go on forever. Do you see any industries that you think the uh, the Biden administration is specifically targeting with this? Is this just their statement of general legal philosophy and kind of general economic philosophy? Or are they going after, I mean, you know, when we talk gig, gig workers, you, you think of Uber and Lyft right off the top of your, your head. Are they really going after that? Is that sort of public enemy number one to them? Um, the way that they wrote in some of those factors, John, that we talked about, like the GPS technology, the price setting makes it seem like they might go after them. <laughs> uh, so that would be my, um, you know, prediction. Maybe I, I don't know if I want to call it a prediction, but maybe they won't. Right. I just think that they wrote part of those, you know, I think that some of those things were explicitly for the gig economy, like price setting, um, is, is very explicit. Um, it sounds like drivers in general, right? So, um, they might go after the FedEx drivers, right? <laughs> so that's another, that's another, uh, that's another group that when I was reading through the rule kind of popped out at me. Um, and then also just kind of traditionally misclassified, uh, workers, um, you know, sorry, workers that the Department of Labor has thought of as potentially traditionally misclassified, which was construction, construction right, workers. Because back to FedEx. They have employee drivers, obviously, yep. but they also contract out with, with other companies. Some of those companies they contract with are big, and those people in turn are employed. But I guess there are some pretty small operators out there that uh, that are driving for FedEx who are not technically, not I shouldn't say technically, but who are not FedEx employees. you think that's a, a possible big thing that they're after? It could be. Again, it's, um, you know, we, we would be guessing here, but in the way that they wrote the rules, um, with the GPS monitoring, right? Kind of pointing, pointing out those things directly. It seems like they, they would be going after some drivers. I don't know if it would be, you know, FedEx and specifically, uh, or, uh, some truck drivers specifically. But again, we can only kind of implicitly see what they were suggesting and in, in the ways that they wrote the rule. And, uh, some of those things that I pointed out kind of popped up the price setting, the GPS technology monitoring. Um, again, when they, when they mentioned the aspect on flexibility, that made me think of the gig economy companies because that is a staple feature, right, of of Uber. I pick up my app and I can work whenever I want. I can turn it off whenever I want. So uh, that's kind of why I highlighted um, highlighted those industries, um, John. But you know, it's it's we'll, we'll see what happens. And by the way, we didn't discuss this, but it, you know, it's not even having a guidance like this, even if the Department of Labor does not go after, right, does not enforce or does not apply it to the gig economy or to FedEx or other industries. Um, you could have these uh, class action lawsuits um, where the judges refer back to this guideline of the Department of Labor rule, right? So we saw some of these class action lawsuits in 2015, 2016, 2017 with Uber and Lyft and, and so forth. Um, and so kind of having, even having that Department of Labor guideline, some of the judges might refer back to that and be like, well, you can't, you know, count this as flexibility because the Department of Labor says it doesn't count as flexibility, right? And so I think that's another, um, another thing we should, uh, be aware of that it's not just how the Department of Labor is going to enforce it, but it, it might play out in a different setting, like class action lawsuits. Yeah. They, I mean, there aren't, and there aren't too many corporate attorneys out there who are going to say to their people, just ignore it. 
just go on as such. I mean, maybe some will, but the vast majority will say, look, these are the laws. You better get in, in line with it. And the same thing with AB5 in California. How many how many legal actions do they take? There's only so many hours in a day and so many days in a week. Most companies aren't going to be the subject of it, but nobody wants to roll that dice and be the one who, you know, who who ends up being the one that, that gets selected for a legal action that then costs them hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees, not to say, not, not even counting any fines that they might have to pay at the end. But, and that's the troublesome aspect is because the small businesses and small organizations and nonprofits who work with independent contractors, they don't have the resources to kind of go into these large class action lawsuits or, or to be potentially fined and have lawyers and, and all of these various things. And, and I know you covered AB5, but, you know, that was one of the things that was highlighted by the Los Angeles Times, uh, by, yeah, by the Los Angeles Times about the heartbreaking profile of all the like small dance, you know, organizations, the theaters, and all these various groups that that basically said, and they interviewed them, like, "Hey, like, we don't we don't want to be potentially misclassifying these workers, so we're not going to work with contractors altogether because they don't have the resources to go through what Lyft and Uber and DoorDash are able to do with these uh, legal challenges and and to settle hundred million dollar lawsuits, right, on these um, misclassification uh, nationwide like um, uh, uh, legal rules." And so, I think that's important to point out that. Um, we need to think about some of the small organizations and businesses that are also hiring independent contractors. Now, if we look at IRS data, uh, they, from since 2001, small and low wage firms, so under, um, 20 employees have seen the highest growth in independent contractors between 2001 and 2016. And so they would probably be most likely, uh, to not be able to, um, extend all of those contracting positions into employment positions um, if they were impacted by this rule. Yeah, it, it would be interesting to see if the, the Department of Labor wanted to make it first stand on this. Uh, do they go after a big whale? But if this, Because the, the problem with that is that the big whale probably has resources to drag them into a long fight. Or do you want to go after some small fry that, you know, that, that can easily get public sympathy behind them? You know, you, you talk about the law of unintended consequences. AB5 was targeting Uber, Lyft, and mm-hmm. mostly drayage drivers down in the south, Southern California ports, and they ended up mailing ballerinas. You know, this is this is not what yeah. the plan was. Exactly. <laughs> and that's why they got, that's why there was that backlash, right? And then you had to exempt the musicians and the translators and so forth. Right. So what what, what is, do you think the course for this is? I guess it's uh, the common period, I believe, was extended. So that's still open right now. Um, when do you see this rule actually going into effect? And when do you think you might see a first action after that? Yes, yeah, so I think so. The, the rule is extended to December 13th. Um, then they need to review all of the, com- the comments. Comment period. Comment period. Oh, sorry, excuse me. Right. I, I, I apologize. So the comment yeah. period has been extended to December 13th. Um, and so they're encouraging um, and anyone you know who might be impacted or have any thoughts on it to make sure to put in a public interest comment, submit a public interest comment on this. Um, then they'll have to go through all of those comments and they, and they are, they have to legally address every single comment uh, that they see come through. Uh, I would not expect this to, uh, I would expect this maybe to come out in quarter two, potentially a final rule, uh, um, sometime in quarter two in 2023. Um, likely there's going to be legal challenges on it as well, just as there was, um, in the previous, uh, when they, when they tried to withdraw the, you know, the Trump 2021 rule. Um, I think so. One of the things that I've also focused on in, in my research that I'll, I'll be submitting a public interest comment on is that 
they don't address specific harms to particular groups of people. Um, and, you know, they're supposed to be able to do a cost benefit analysis when they publish these comments. And I, you know, I read through the 186 page uh, report and they don't do a proper cost benefit analysis, which is like, uh, it's because they assume that all of the uh, impacted parties um, will have, there'll be a hundred percent basically success rate in that anyone who was an independent contractor will be, will become an employee, uh, an employee. But we know that that's not the case. We saw in AB5, that wasn't the case. Right. And so they, as a, as a result, by making that assumption, they don't do a proper cost benefit analysis. A proper cost benefit analysis would address what percentage of workers, right, would lose both independent contracting positions and not have employment positions extended to them? And how big of a cost is that, right? Like, what percentage do we think it is? You know, it's not 100%. We can't assume 100% of uh, contracting positions will turn into employment positions. Um, and so that's just not addressed at all. And they don't address specific harm on groups of people. So, um, you know, women might be particularly impacted by this. I do research on women who are independent workers. Um, and, you know, they, that, that, that is not discussed in the rule. Um, the reason it impacts women is because there are some women we know from the survey and research in this area who are unable to take on traditional employment. So they rely on some of these platform uh, work. So Etsy, you know, DoorDash, um, dog walking apps, right? So to the extent that those, uh, that it limits those contracting options, it might also disproportionately impact women who might not other, who might uh, not be able to take on traditional employment opportunities. And the irony of all this is you say, let's say it goes into effect in the second quarter of next year. If a Republican were to be victorious in the presidential race within just two years, uh, they might come in and do what the Biden administration did, which is just yank the rule right off the bat. Now, as it turned out, the Biden administration legally wasn't able to do that. And a court forced them to put the Trump rule back into effect, which actually is in effect today. But so these people who work on these 185 page reports to pull this together, it must be very frustrating. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on to know that your work could go like that, except that maybe it then sets a precedent for if your party gets back into power someday, they dust it off and pull it out again. It's it's it makes a lot of work for lawyers, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And I think, and I, I'm glad you brought this up because it, it just swings back and forth, but no one is addressing how to really help independent contractors, right? Because regardless of what happens to the COL role, there's still going to be millions of workers who are independent contractors, and they're still going to be outside of the purview of potentially employment-based um, benefits. Now, what I've been um, kind of working on is trying to understand what are the legal barriers that stand in the way of companies, organizations, or you and me, individuals, right, giving benefits to independent contractors. And it turns out under the IRS, you know, it's, it's explicit on their website that if a, you know, if an organization, a company or an individual gives benefits to um, an independent contractor, they risk their, they risk turning that per, uh, person into an employee instead. And so companies have explicitly talked about this. Um, but it doesn't get enough attention that there is a strong legal barrier that prevents companies organizations or others from voluntarily giving benefits to independent contractors if they want them to have um, benefits. And so uh, I think that we, you know, at least from my end, I'm, you know, trying to highlight these aspects and what um, policy changes could help um, benefits flow to independent contractors voluntarily, you know, as needed. And so I think the IRS needs to kind of step in in this case. It's not something that the Department of Labor can do. Um, but the IRS can step in in this case and say, look, 
look, if or if organizations provide benefits to independent contractors, we'll treat that as compensation and not as benefits. So it doesn't risk the business model and just, dis- and so that it doesn't discourage, uh, companies from giving benefits to their workers if they want. Well, we've got a lot of back and forth that's going to go on for several years, which means one thing. We're going to have to have you back here on Drilling Deep. Well, thank you. <laughs> I hope to discuss portable benefits next time because I think that's the next movement that allow wor- that allow workers and companies basically to step into the future because we're going to continue having more flexible forms of work. This is going to continue being a problem and we need to think how to not go you know, do these swings that you said back and forth, Trump administration, uh, you know, Republican administration pulls it, then the Biden administration pulls another one. And we need to address real, real, ch- uh, how to really solve this problem. And I think, you know, we need to address this legal barrier that stands in the way of uh, companies giving benefits to independent contractors if they want voluntarily. So we're going to look forward then to Leah Palagashvili to join us again here on Drilling Deep. Leah, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been a great conversation with you. You have been watching Drilling Deep. We are part of FreightWaves TV. We drop every Friday at 2.30, and you can see us on demand at all times. Just look for FreightWaves TV and the drop down that says shows. You'll see us on there, Drilling Deep. I've been your host, John Kingston, and please join us again. (laughs) 